Thank you, everybody, for joining us for our final episode of season one. This time we're joined by Beth and Leah, both students based in the UK, but originally from Ethiopia. And we're going to speak about the Tigray crisis in Ethiopia. Thank you both for joining us. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. So our first question is, if you guys wouldn't mind just giving us a brief history or summary behind the current events regarding the Tigray crisis, just to help us contextualise it. The, the most contemporary part of this, I guess, would start around sort of September, October time of last year. Um, and so Tigray is one of many regions in Ethiopia, which is semi-autonomous. Um, so there's the regional government and the federal government of the country. Um, and they've actually had somewhat of, of a troublesome relationship within the last few years. Um, but around that time last year, Tigray decided to hold um, regional elections. Um, and that's, that was against the government, essentially, because the government wanted to um, delay elections and cited COVID as a reason. Tugrai decided that they were going to go ahead with their regional elections, um, and they actually did go through with them, and millions of people did cast their votes. The expected outcome was that TPLF would win, and they did. They, they have been the regional government of Tugrai for ages. That was what triggered a lot of it. So if we fast forward a bit, there was a bit of a conflict, I would say, between the actual of troops on both sides. Um, TPLF, they launched a preemptive um, airstrike after they said they found intel the militia of the government were going to be launching an attack on them. Um, And so to prevent that, that's what they decided to go forward with. And that caused, I guess, the government to then say, okay, this is going to be like a full-blown conflict now. But the real sort of issue has been that the civilians have been the ones that are getting hurt in this. At the end of the day, ultimately, a lot of us have been confused as to how holding regional elections has led to all this. But really, the TPLF, which is Tigray's regional government, um, and the current government in Ethiopia have not been seeing eye to eye for quite a while now. Um, TPLF actually led Ethiopia in a coalition for uh, 27 years. And that period came to end around 2015 time, 2015, 2018 a new party was formed called the Prosperity Party. And that Prosperity Party was led with a coalition of the other regional governments. And TPLF actually refused to merge because the new Prosperity Party was seeking to end ethnic federalism, which actually provided increased autonomy to these regions. And that was actually one of the things which helped increase autonomy and uh, help regions sort of make their own decisions, which became somewhat necessary because a lot of different regions were experiencing oppression in past regimes etc. Despite this, um, despite the fact that all of this conflict has been going on for a while now, um, I don't think anybody expected it to come to this, nobody whatsoever. I think what's really key about the whole crisis is how um, communications were lost um, specifically in the beginning um, parts of the whole crisis, is it's kind of just a bit difficult for people to believe the government if they're the only source of information on everything that's happening, uh, especially when you know clearly that there is a war happening and it's, it's very well documented. Until a couple, maybe a month or two ago, there was no civilian casualties, which is really difficult to believe. And so it's just, on one hand, people in the wider community, the global community, might seem to think, oh, well, the TPLF is at fault for this, for, you know, launching a uh, strike at the beginning. Um, It's kind of difficult to know if that really actually happened because, you know, people who live in the country as well, now that the the telecommunications have opened, have started to speak about things that um, really 
don't really go with what the government's actually been saying this whole time. So, and there's been a lot of little instances where it's just been quite obvious that it was the government who cut off the network because, you know, every time they would take control of an area, the lines would automatically start working. And it just came kind of, you know, ironic. And so it's just quite difficult. And that's the main thing I think that's the issue with the Tigray crisis is not only the deaths of the civilians and the targeting of civilians, the fact that the Eritrean government has involved themselves in the UAE, but also mainly the communication error between um, the government and the TPLF and the people in the rest of the world. And I think it's worth mentioning as well with regards to um, sort of recent years and everything leading up to this. The TPLF, in terms of its establishment, was actually a revolutionary one. It actually was born out of the oppression of the people of Tigray. Um, there have been many regimes in Ethiopia's past which actually sought to oppress minority groups. Tugurai, the people of Tugurai was one of those groups. And for sort of the, the years leading up to TPLF's birth, there was a dictatorship which ran in Ethiopia for, for many, many years. Um, and under that dictatorship, millions of lives were lost. Um, the leader of that dictator actually was found guilty of committing genocide. He actually had to flee the country because he was actually sentenced to death and etc. So it was a big, big issue. I don't think anybody expected the TPLF to become as well established as it is now because, you know, with the help of the EPLF, they were actually they managed to overthrow the um, the dictatorship at the time. When we talk about the sort of history and the conflict, it's really, really important to realise that a lot of the issues that arise are conflicts between different ethnic groups. And so even right now, when we see certain groups favouring the government, it's not so much about who the government are, it's about who the government are against. Um, and that's really important to note in terms of the history, because Ethiopia, like, like many, many African nations, is comprised of many different ethnic groups. Um, and so there is a lot of tension between those groups. And so when we look at the history of Ethiopia, um, which is really, really hard to sort of compress into, into this, but when we look at the history of it and, and the different groups that exist, this, this isn't something that just came out of the blue kind of thing, you know, it wasn't something where, oh yeah, out, all of a sudden there's this sort of conflict. No, this has been going on for a while now and we see time and time again when one group sort of lead the country, another seem to be oppressed. Those dynamic form within the country um, and even the current Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed Ali, he was actually part of the coalition that TPLF led. So he worked alongside these people, you know, and all of a sudden, as soon as he was prime minister, bearing in mind he never even had an election, he was actually nominated by, by the people in the coalition and they actually put him forward, including members of the TPLF themselves. When you look at how all of a sudden there was this switch um, and he, he sort of went on this sort of demonising campaign against the TPLF for the past few years, we already know, knew that they didn't see eye to eye. I mean, the TPLF didn't join that coalition because they didn't agree with their sorts of attitudes towards ethnic federalism. Still, even considering the history and, and all of that conflict, nobody thought that it was possible for Abiy Ahmed to um, essentially corroborate with the Eritrean dictator, to supply Eritrean troops, to bomb homes, citizens, etc. So, yeah, I mean, Ethiopia, when we talk about different ethnic groups being oppressed, it doesn't have a pretty past. Um, but even when you do consider that past and when you do consider that difficult history, there is no justification for this. But the, the, the sort of the times at which we started to protest was when this was harming civilians and when, you know, bombs were being dropped and when troops were committing atrocities against innocent civilians. That's the point at which this became an actual issue. I don't even think Abiy Ahmed himself expected that this would happen. I think he sort of got carried away. 
but I guess yeah it's a very difficult it's very difficult to pinpoint how and why this happened because it's very easy for some people to say well yeah it happened because of the conflict between the two groups and the history and you know TPLF responding because they had some intel about the fact that they were going to be attacked but even when you consider that when you consider the actual information like Leah said that's coming out now it's still very hard to establish how and why all of this happened. What is it about the about Tigray that makes it so special in Ethiopia? Usually when there is any form of genocide or mass killings of people, there's something very unique about that population or that group that makes people either envious or very hostile towards them. So what is it about the Tigray community that you think is causing this? Um, yeah, uh, there's quite a lot of history that, you know, each region has their own really rich and distinct history that makes you know them proud of where they come from. And Tigray is like the same. So, um, you know, even going back like thousands of years or hundreds of years where um, the kingdom of uh, Abyssinia and also, you know, the Queen Sheba and all that stuff that all the Aksumite kingdom actually came from from Tigray and, you know, the second oldest mosque in the world is in Tigray. And, you know, so many historical artifacts and so many, you know, deep historical phenomenons um, has happened in Tigray. And I think the main reason why a lot of Tigrayans don't want to don't agree with federalization is because um, it's kind of pushing forward one particular ethnic group over others. And um, I mean, specifically from what I'm seeing, uh, it's Amhara, the Amhara region, which is uh, located under Tigray and near the capital Addis Ababa. Um, and this region, you know, the national language of Ethiopia is Amharic. And um, it's come to the point, you know, I can kind of compare it to the Hong Kong situation um, with China trying to, you know, nationalize Mandarin there and, you know, situations like that where they have a hard way of life because every place has a different way of life, their, their language, their culture is trying to be pushed onto um, specifically Tigray, I can't say for other areas. And, you know, that's not something people will take easily. And I think what's really desp despicable about this whole war is not only are people being um, murdered essentially for their ethnic background, so it's a genocide, um, but they're also going for the history here, but they're destroying old buildings, they're destroying, you know, the mosque, they're trying to, do, you know, take away from all the history that, you know, at once, at one point, this was all a united country, you know, before all of these conflicts happened and before um, people started to get wary of each other, we were still one country and to destroy the history, to try and take that away, I think it's quite indicative of how far they're willing to go to get rid of Tigray and to destroy them all, which I think is quite extreme. And it's something that, again, we just didn't think they would even go to do. Um, there's been a lot of reports of, you know, not only Ethiopian, but Eritrean soldiers as well, of just doing small, really um, cruel acts, not only murder, but like uh, they would, uh, this is coming from different people's perspectives, which is why it's not verified. But I, for some reason, I believe the people over both governments because um, they're actually experiencing these things. But they would go into universities and steal all the PPE for coronavirus, or they've stealing pots and pans and cutting. Um, we have this traditional food called injera, which is like a flatbread. 
and you make it on this circular like pan, they would smash them in half or there's little things to ensure that people can't survive or will have a very you know, bad livelihood um, during this war. And it's just really, again, showing how this isn't a political uh, difference. This isn't, you know, uh, one group saying, oh, we want this and we want another. This is pure hatred. Um, and that's why I think it's really like striking to us right now, so. Especially in terms of, like Leah said, Tugrai's history. Tugrai's history is incredibly rich, incredibly rich. It was amongst one of the first regions in Africa to accept both Christianity and Islam. Um, and the kingdoms, like she talked about, these are very, very considerable aspects of Tugrai when you, when, you talk, when you look at its history. And even the sites that are there and to see that this is now being destructed, it's almost, it, it, there's no other way to put it other than despicable because the history of Tugrai is one of its most integral factors when we talk about why it's such an important region and what what about it is so incredible and amazing. It's almost as if it's a direct assassination of Tugrai's character as a whole and, and one of its essential building blocks. And so when you look at that, and, and like Leah said, other regions within the country do have also their own respectable, incredible history as well. Um, and we should all be proud of our own cultures. But I think the main issue is the fact that in Ethiopia, many people don't respect each other's differences. Um, they don't want to acknowledge each other's differences. They don't want to acknowledge one's own culture and identity. And that for many Togarus, especially part of the diaspora, has created some sort of an identity crisis. Because for many Togarus, including myself, for a long time, we just considered ourselves Ethiopian. And, you know, we just had that sort, sort, sort of sense of Ethiopian pride and we are Ethiopian. But now this has really, really exposed an underlying issue, which is the fact that for many other diaspora groups um, within Ethiopia, they always did put their sort of um, ethnic group first. And that has unfortunately created somewhat of a superiority complex, um, this sort of, you know, and that's not to say that you shouldn't be proud of your ethnic group because you you also you always should be. But I think this has made me realize that there was no there was no real sense of Ethiopian pride um, in the sense that I thought there was. The divisions that are being sown into the country right now, even aside from the Tigray conflict, when we see, for example, within the Oromo region, um, and I know Leah mentioned also the Amhara region, it's very disappointing to see that there is this lack of unity. There is this tearing each other apart um, the, depending on which region you're from. Right now even among the Ethiopian diaspora nobody really apart from the Tugalus ourselves are talking about this issue. Um, nobody and in recent sort of as time has gone on a lot more Oromo have also been talking about it because they too oppose the government um, but it's really difficult because a lot of of the diaspora, especially um, the Amhara diaspora, have actually been denying that this is happening. They've actually tried to speak over us. Um, they've even tried to do things like create Twitter campaigns with their own hashtags, which directly contradict our own. And that's not to say that that's, this is all Amhara. This is generally people that support the government. When you look at the sort of reasons as to why, they always say things like, where were you for 27 years when the TPLF were leading the country. And they even asked me directly, where were you 27 years ago? And I think that's just such a despicable question, considering that number one, I wasn't even born 27 years ago. I was, I was not even alive to witness these things that they talk about. But number two, to use that as a justification 
that young children should be killed, that pregnant women should be murdered, that women should be raped, that people should have their homes looted, their home, their institutions bombed. It's just, it's, it, because this is a genocide at this point, there is no justification whatsoever. The minute that this is used as, as a means to justify the actions that are happening in Tigray right now, the conversation there is ended, which is why there is this real sense of lack of unity among the Ethiopian diaspora. I mean, it, I don't think, I've never seen it this bad. Um, because it's just disappointed me to uh, in a way that I couldn't even explain um, because it's this sort of sense of pride about where people are from has gotten to the point where now it just means they can't even see our pain there is no real sense of resonating with us um, and it's really disappointing actually because especially when they claim that they were oppressed for 27 years it should mean that they can understand us more it should mean that they have sympathy for us and empathy but they don't just on that note, um, earlier you said, I, I might not pronounce this right, so correct me if I'm wrong, you said the Oromos are um, opposed to the government. Is that because they sympathise with you or just because they don't like the government? Um, no, they, they've had their own issues even with the government. They've, they've been having their protests. Actually, the Oromo um, protests have been going on for a little longer. Um, uh, one of their prominent singers as well was recently murdered. Um, and a lot of Oromo activists have been in prison. We're talking about thousands, by the way. This isn't like a small scale issue. The government has essentially been silencing them. And so these Oromo protests have been going on for a while now. Um, and even among the diaspora um, in places like the US, they've been having their protests for quite a while. It's just that since November, since we've also been happening to protest the government for, because of our own issues, there is this unity that sort of developed. Um, within sort of the recent months and we've been fighting sort of alongside each other increasingly and it's also I think um, now's a good time to mention as well a lot of the Eritrean diaspora have also been um, supporting us I think it's a good point to mention now many people actually do not support what the Eritrean government is doing a lot of Eritrean refugees have actually suffered as a consequence of this because many refugees from Eritrea do actually live in Tigray um, and a lot of them who had actually fled the region were forcibly returned, even though it was still dangerous there. So currently, as we speak, um, you have a lot of the Oromo uh, community, the Togarus, and the a uh, lot of the Eritrean community who are actually opposing this. Um, but obviously, on on both, you know, on one Eritrean side, you do have some of those that do support their respective governments and and don't necessarily oppose this war. Um, I just thought it'd be really important to point out what's happening in Eritrea as well, because I think that's a really big part of it. But they've been under a dictator, I'm not sure quite how many years, but for a very, very long time. Um, because, uh, his name is Isias Afroki, I think I'm saying that right. Um, and so he's kind of got the whole dictatorship role hammered down. Like, you know, he has a system, you reach this age or you look this age, you're straight to the military. You can't really come back in this for holidays or whatever. And he's kind of brainwashed the next generation of Eritreans to an extent in the country anyways to thinking that their purpose is correct. And I think it's honestly something that we wouldn't have ever thought of, but looking back at it now, seeing how Abby came into power and Isias all of a sudden, or him claiming that Ethiopian and Eritrean um, conflicts have resolved due under Abby Ahmed, when we know that it's been a while now, um, it's quite you know telling that Isias always had this at the back of his mind, I'm, I'm guessing, to, to involve himself because, you know, a dictator is better when there's two of them, you know. And um, I think also we need to point out with Oromo as well, uh, they've been oppressed for many, many years. And I'm quite sad 
I'm disappointed in myself for not knowing this, but then again, as diaspora, we kind of have this naive look of Ethiopia and we think everyone's the same. We don't really notice the cultural differences. Um, but thinking back at it now, actually, when people would ask you, oh, where are your parents from? And things like that. I'm like, oh, from Tigray, because both my parents are from there. I kind of realize now, um, if I just look at it a bit closer, that that was maybe an in indicator that, um, that people really cared from what region you came from. And so the Oromo region, they've been, you know, pressed for many, many years. Um, and specifically before the election that TPLF, uh, the TPLF had, um, there was the killing of his, of the uh, activist singer um, in Oromo, which you mentioned, and a lot of protests happening then. I think that also was like an indicator that this was going to be more serious than it actually um, was. And uh, yeah, so I just think a lot of small parts to play into the re the reality of why this is actually happening um and this is another reason why i don't really resonate at all with the government and and with any of the words they're saying because there is no proof there's no evidence there's a lot of um you know communications between other countries and other regions um to do with this and a lot of uh, the amhara people who support the government as well it's also because it's self-serving for them. I mean, it's their region that's going to have the language spread and their, their culture and, you know, even the capital city, which technically, well, it does reside in Oromo, but it's kind of been swallowed by Amhara because a lot of them live there and everyone speaks Amharic in, um, in Addis and they're trying to take claim of even the, the capital city, which is meant to be a hub for everyone. And so, you know, it's just a very self-serving self -serving reason for why they would support him, which is why it's quite difficult to see their point of view, even if they have been oppressed for 27 years. You know, it's also very difficult to understand when exactly there's been circumstances, which I definitely agree with, but there's also been others where it's been conflicting for me. Um, but despite all of this, the answer isn't violence. The answer isn't, you know, spe specifically when someone who's part from their region as well and also... Um, represents their interest is in power there is no reason to further it with war like there is no it's not necessary it's just um i think purely out of hatred i think it's just to smite tigray out of the map or to you know kill everyone in the region so they can take the land and just claim it as amhara or claim it as another part of ethiopia um and erase the history and the people that were there and have contributed so much to the country so yeah i think that's really important like information people need to think about. If I could just also add, Leah mentioned a really good point about the Eritrean dictator. A lot of what people don't actually know is that Isaias, he's very opposed to the TPLF. He, he's happy that this is happening. This, he has been planning this. I don't know if many, if many people know this, but actually in 2018, Abiy Ahmed actually won the Nobel Peace Prize um, for essentially reducing the conflict or essentially and ensuring that there was peace between Eritrea and Ethiopia. And this was like a revolutionary thing, you know, because Eritrea and Ethiopia, they've been opposing sides for years and years and years. I actually believed this. I fell for it. I was very much like, wow, you know, Ethiopian Eritrea, this is revolutionary. Abiy Ahmed, he, he's a great guy. Um, and so he did win the Nobel Peace Prize 
for for that and um, a lot of people at the time fell for it but it, it's really really evident now that there was actually a plan there was more to this than than what we thought it wasn't simply Ethiopian Eritrea were finally coming to a middle ground and their leaders finally saw eye to eye um, and there was actually a very very famous picture of Isaias and Abi shaking hands and it kind of you know a lot of people were like wow this is this is incredible um, but now that they're cooperating against a, a region in Ethiopia I mean I'm not surprised from Isaias's perspective he's a dictator and I've never had respect for him and many 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 people aren't surprised but Abi Ahmed this man came into Ethiopia uh, and he, he, he said everything we needed to hear. He even came to Tugrain when he was campaigning. He said incredible things about Tugrain, the people. He actually spoke in our language. He said he loved Tugrain and their people. And to know that he is now corroborating with a dictator against people of his own country, that there's a real sense of disappointment with Abiy Ahmed Ali. It's definitely worth noting in mind that, you know, he did win this Nobel Peace Prize. It's really not not been worth it at all because this is what he was actually going ahead with with everything going on and from all that you guys have said we can see that this is a humanitarian basically international community um, such as bodies like the un doing about this especially when it comes to preventing it from escalating to the point of something that for instance happened in rwanda yeah um i think the diaspora, especially the Tagaru diaspora, are very fed up with the UN at this point because there comes a point where the silence is really deafening um, and, and they're just bystanders simply because they know the extent of this situation, they know what's going on um, and simply calling for the government to stop will not do anything. We're talking about a corrupt government who at this point is actually a dictator. He deliberately extended his stay by citing COVID as a reason. Um, and he continues to essentially demonize people who go against him. He's shut off telecommunications within the region. He's banned journalists from going inside. He's banned aid. And even though two days ago, they, he said that he would start to allow aid to enter. They actually mentioned today that 80% of people still do not have any access to aid and there is still certain restrictions going on. So, you know, controlling the narrative while ensuring that people from within the region cannot really speak out um, and stopping them, these are signs of a dictator. I mean, I don't know how else to put it. You know, censorship, um, you, you've had over 60,000 individuals have fled to Sudan within the space of a couple of months. And, you know, their testimonies really do give an example of the extent of this crisis you know initially even people like myself I didn't think it was going to be this big of an issue I thought that you know he just he just probably thought he would shut off telecommunications for a week or something as a an electricity but we're talking about this happened in November we're now in February tomorrow I think marks 100 days since the beginning of this crisis um the UN have again and again have said, you know, well, we are calling for, we're calling for this and that, and it just doesn't do anything. And I think a lot of people like myself are fed up because what's going to happen is when the world does find out about the extent of this genocide, just like they did the Rwanda genocide, they'll say, I'm sorry, we should have done more to stop this. We're sorry, we had the resources and the capability to do it, but we didn't. And then they're going to promise us that it will never happen again. But it will, because the reality is developing nations especially unless I guess, I don't know, they have oil or something, other sort of the international community don't really see any sense to intervene and to do anything. Um, and, you know, a lot of the Ethiopian diaspora are actually capitalizing on the fact that UN aren't doing enough. They're saying things like, you know, 
the you know Ethiopia is a sovereign nation you know we shouldn't have people to intervene the reality is as sovereign as you want Ethiopia to be we rely on aid from many different um, international communities we we get a percentage of government budgets within the western world if we are to receive these benefits they also have to punish the government if they are committing a genocide against their own people um, and actually the the UK, in terms of Parliament, they were meant to have another vote on the genocide um, agreement amendment, and um, that amendment sort of sought to say that you know those governments that are sort of um, exposed as committing genocides against their own people, you know, trade will be sort of reduced between those countries as a, as a means of like some sort of punishment or whatever you want to call it. And actually, the the government did vote against it, so the House of Lords actually approved the amendment, um, but the government, funnily enough, I'm not surprised whatsoever. Um, did vote against it. Um, so, you know, the, the other parts of parliament, like Labour, etc., voted in favour of it. And then you had uh, majority conservatives voting against this. And things like this really do provide an insight into the reality of, of people like myself who are part of this diaspora, because it's so heartbreaking to know what's going on back home. And it's so heartbreaking to know the extent and severity of it. And it's even worse to know that the international community actually do, they do know what's going on. I mean, um, the US have actually called for the Eritrean troops to be removed. Um, the EU joined with their call for Eritrean troops to be removed, but just simply calling them to remove troops does absolutely nothing. Um, at this point, the UN, if they do continue to be quiet, are, are just as bad as Abiy Ahmed, um, because they have the ability, and not just them, but the international community as, as a whole, because um, I think about four aid workers have actually been killed by troops in Ethiopia. And that really does put a perspective into the reality of this. If even aid workers, even if the militia have no shame in murdering aid workers, what makes them think that they, they care about the civilians? What makes them think that they'll think twice about killing innocent people who, by the way, have no way of communicating with the outside world? I mean, sh shutting off electricity, shutting down banks, people don't have any money, preventing aid. I don't think people realise that it's not just the guns that are killing people. People are now dying of starvation. This is, an, this is a man-made famine, if you, if you think about it, deliberately withholding aid and food and leading to people dying from starvation is just weaponizing hunger and weaponizing violence and all of that is just insane in my eyes. And the fact that the international community and the UN haven't done enough, it's a real shame on them. I don't understand what their purpose is if all they're going to do is talk the talk when they can't walk the walk. Um, but yeah, many of us are disappointed in them, especially in diaspora. Well, specifically, if you want to talk about the UN, I mean, currently it's kind of under fire with uh, its employees or workers committing actual crimes in the countries they're in, like sexual violence and to underage people and all that kind of stuff. So they are in kind of hot water. But um, I think what was really frustrating at the beginning of the crisis was uh, you know, I understand countries have like rules and regulations and reasons why they do things, but it was very much talk, talk and not much action. So, you know, as much as they want to honor the country that they're trying to help, you know, they don't want to completely smite um, the government. But it's like as much as as they continue to talk, people are dying. So it's like, you know, there's not a sense of urgency, I felt. Um, and, you know, the government blocked humanitarian um, aid to that area, which I think should have been the first sign or like the last sign even to be like, we need to do something about this as an international community. Um, even if it's not because you want to help the people, but you want to not necessarily, um, if you want to stop the another migrant crisis happening 
um, at the bud. Even if it was for self-serving purposes, at least an action would have been great, would have been wonderful, but it was very much the EU and other countries just calling out on Twitter or discussing it in conventions and no one really putting the groundwork down to get something done. Um, I just found out that two days ago, the, e, the government allowed the UN to provide assistance, humanitarian um, aid to the country, which as much as that is, you know, good now, it's, I'm really unsure how that's even going to be maneuvered because if they're not, if they weren't allowed before, who's to say they won't take all the resources? Who's to say they won't redistribute it to people who, you know, are backing them? But yeah, it's just been very much, very little action that's been happening. And I think that's what's really frustrating for a lot of people in our community. And although they've been, there's also been sanctions, there's been numerous things that have just been very much uh, we disagree with what you're doing, but we don't want to start something because we don't care enough to, to really get the ball moving. And it's only, like you said, it's only when it gets serious, like, you know, the Middle East or you know, Libya and all those places where really they're going through a horrible, horrible um, situation when other countries finally wake up to what's been happening and find a little bit of humanity and find a little bit of compassion to do something about it. Um, and I think that's a re another reason why uh, us diaspora, or at least myself, don't really like have kind of had got kind of have a divorce sense of um, reality and and kind of are, I guess, like you said, not really trusting politicians anymore and not really believing that anyone can help us but us, which isn't a nice thing to think, but it's something that we're going to have to come to terms with. So. Really and truly, the Togaru diaspora, like I said, this for us is a humanitarian fight on every single level. We've known for a while now that many who are part of the Ethiopian diaspora do not like the TPLF, and we've been perfectly okay with it. I really could not care less. Um, but my worry is the people of Tugrai, the innocent people of Tugrai. They can't do anything. They, a lot of them actually can't even leave their home because they're scared that something will happen to them. I and mean, actually yesterday in, in the capital city in Makala, a lot of people started protesting. The militia actually just shot them and killed them point blank with not even thinking twice. And so for us, this is a humanitarian issue. It's not a matter of, well, you know what, you don't like the TPLF and so we're going to protest that. No, this is not like that. Because if that was the case, we would have started protesting years ago because people have been not liking the TPLF. But this is a matter of a humanitarian crisis. 100 days now it's been going on for. Um, and there is absolutely no justification for it. No matter where people go to justify this, no matter where people stand, and it's so frustrating to me when you talk about the issue and people expect you to answer for the TPLF. It's very, very frustrating. Now that um, the lines have been sort of restored in Mangala, we're beginning to hear stories and testimonies from loved ones in those regions. Um, and from what they've told us, especially, it is really the Eritrean troops who have been looting, who have been killing, who have been raping, who have been raiding homes. Um, actually, a, a new testimony that's sort of come forward now is that, um, like Leah said, there's a traditional food called injera that we have. Um, and one of the sort of ingredients is a type of flour. I would call it death, but there's like a flour um, that you need for it. And troops have actually, it's disgusting, but troops have actually, um, they've gotten uh, like mud from the, from the ground and they've started to mix that in with people's flour 
so that they can't have anything to eat, so that they can't make food to eat. Bearing in mind, they, they can't rely on aid because aid isn't coming through. Um, and so this, this really is a matter of not just a genocidal war, they're weaponizing things like hunger, they're weaponizing things like rape, they're weaponizing so many things and they are committing literal war crimes. We're not talking about a minor you know, detail or two. These are genuine war crimes and we are expecting and we are fighting for them to, to be, well, it's hard to sanction um, SIS, but Abi definitely, he needs to be sanctioned because he is committing war crimes at this point. And like Leah said, had this been any sort of Western government, this it wouldn't have even gotten to this point if this was happening in a Western world and in, in the Western world, it wouldn't have even gotten to this point. It would have stopped way before but because Ethiopia I guess isn't significant to many of these countries it doesn't really provide an incentive for other international communities or leaders to step in at all. I was just wanting to reiterate what um, Betty was saying and I wanted to just kind of talk about how it's very it's like a very common thing a common trope that's been happening is the western world the, apparently the beacons of um, democracy and freedom actually end up almost favoring worse in this you know many developing countries like you said they they you know they go through um many dictatorships and um especially you know ever since the 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 global south and the global north have interacted with each other like quite extremely whether it be slavery whether it be um the the scramble for africa um it's always been the global north on the most part being like we know exactly what people need we are the civilized we are the we are the uh, democratic the free and you guys are the oppressed and uh, we need to help you but something that's been quite apparent not only here but in South America or in the Middle East is um, they will only really get involved when it helps themselves uh, whether it's oil or you know any for example any time a socialist country or a socialist leader comes to power in South America autom- automatically America feels it's their need to destabilize the country because they know that if the developing countries become prosperous as they could be and as they should be, they will lose out. They won't have cheap labor. They won't have cheap materials. You know, if everything is going to become more expensive for them, they might even have to start manufacturing their own goods again, which God forbid that happens. So it's just, it's not, I mean, honestly, I'm not surprised that that they haven't said anything useful. I haven't done actual action. Um, And I, at this point, I'm just wondering how they keep lying to themselves and thinking that they're really benefiting or like helping other countries. Um, and also to talk about, you know, how people are dying basically of a man-made famine. It's not only food and um, and the banks that are being shut down, but even hospitals. They're completely bombing hospitals. They're, um, you know, personally, my grandma has diabetes and there is be- like any there are no pharmacies that actually has her insulin or her medication for it. Um, and it's just, uh, it's just not surprising, but it's really, really disappointing and really upsetting. Um, and even if America and the EU want to call out the Eritrean troops, um, from what I've heard, the stats are like 80% of Ethiopian troops have died or something like that. And so there's literally, it's mainly Eritrean troops and the remainder. So even if the Ethiopian government would like to back away finally or wouldn't want the Eritreans to be involved, I don't think that's possible because at this point, Issyas has taken control of the whole situation because he planned it from the start. And um, he he was the, you know, the veteran dictator, which by the way, I think Abiy Ahmed is a dictator because he extended twice. He didn't, he extended first time for COVID, which is allowed in the constitution. 
But then the reason, another reason why the, the conflict started is because he decided to extend it further and that's not allowed. And so, I mean, he is a dictator in my eyes, but you know, Isias is the main dictator. He's very accomplished. He knows how to get the job done, I guess. And so um, he is essentially, he's essentially, I think, spurring this. I think he's the real key for this because if his troops left and his troops apparently are the ones doing the, the worst of the crimes, you know, the, the sexual violence, the, you know, the incestuous sexual violence, like things that you wouldn't even consider human. Um, if he were to remove his troops, I think the conflict would be almost resolved, especially since Sudan and their troops are helping with um, the TPLF. Um, but I don't see that happening anytime soon, not without pure force. Um, and I don't think that the Western countries will do that until it comes to their doorstep. And, you know, people are dying near where they live. And judging by our country currently with Brexit as well, um, I'm kind of skeptical if they even will um, consider anything because, you know, now we're having a point-based system for immigration and, you know, people are starting to really turn a blind eye to people who are still traveling across the Mediterranean Sea and, and who are still coming over here and not being able to secure a refugee place, an asylum even. I think that the world, um, especially the global north, has become so used to it and so um, not caring anymore and they don't really feel compassion for these people to the extent where it might have to get even worse than other countries for them to actually take action um and that's just horrible in my eyes so yep i would 100 percent definitely agree um i think that when it comes to like i said ethiopia's different ethnic groups and whatever exists it very much tends to be that the one who sort of is superior or whatever will not recognize the pain or the other or will find ways to um sort of justify the actions that are happening against those minority and oppressed groups a lot of the sort of excuses that i've been hearing are again politicized issues and politicized reasons like etc and it's very ironic actually because a lot of people say things to me like you know well tplf did this for 27 years where were you for 27 years and i almost want to ask them where were you because I, I never heard anything about all of this that they're complaining about now. And now they've sort of come out of the woodworks to say, well, you know, this has been happening to us. And that's not to say that I'm going to sit here and deny that those things happen. Because like I said, I wasn't there 27 years ago. But what I can say is, especially in the recent sort of months that this, re that this has been happening for, it's only now that I'm beginning to hear all, all of these people say these things that they've been saying, especially on social media and things like that and it, they're really doing it as a means to silence us and that is the, the the main reason because they could have been doing all of their campaigns and all of this that they're doing now for many years because the reality is the tplf do not rule ethiopia anymore um and so they've had the opportunity time and time again to to do and to go about the activism that they're in, like sort of implementing now but it's only now when we've started to talk about our own oppression that as a way to silence us and talk over us they're bringing this up um, and to put it into perspective I actually made a video about what was going on in, in Tigray to raise awareness um, and someone commented something like oh this is karma and other people started commenting like oh well you know you guys deserve this etc and those comments were 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 significant I'm talking about they they had many likes and they, they were laughing and and they said you know Tugurai you've deserved this and you know this was coming and I'm so happy and etc and it's so so disappointing 
that their happiness relies on our oppression. I mean, it's so ironic because they, they, they're the first ones to say things like, well, we don't need Tigray, you know, we have, Ethiopia is great and brilliant without, without Tigray, but yet they rely on our oppression for their happiness. A lot of people from Tigray are talking about this need for independence. Um, and this is also uh, something similar with the Oromo diaspora. Oromo, the, the Oromo community have also been fighting for their independence. Um, and when, when both of our groups are, are in a conversation and, and sort of discussion about this independence, if I'm honest, when I grew up, I grew up alongside every sort of Ethiopian and I never saw Amhara, Oromo, Tigray. And that's not to say that I didn't recognize their culture, but I never realized that that was a means for division. You know, I was going to say that, sanctioning, this is a trend, right? It always happens. For anybody who's like listening, anytime you hear anything about anyone cutting food supplies, that is war tactic. That's like war tactic 101. I'm called starvation. It's like standard. I guess the, tr- the tricky part, like I'm listening to it, and obviously, yeah, it's like, what do people do? For instance, even sanctioning. Sanctioning is great, but sanctioning will affect the people more than the government. Except they can directly sanction the government, and then people are already suffering. It's annoying because uh, if this happened to a country that is not African, it's not really spoken about. Like, better, it is spoken about, and there's stuff like actually done to kind of prevent it. But it feels like, and we've said this a lot of times on this podcast, it feels like Africans are allowed to suffer. It's like, okay, you guys are getting Sorry. And I guess this is just very annoying for my question. But like, what I was just going to ask was, if you don't mind, all these people that kind of defend the actions of the government, what do they even say to justify it? I'm always curious what people have to say to justify genocide or killing. Because sometimes, I guess, like just putting it in context, let's say the Germans are taking Jews for a certain reason. There's all this hypothesis that they're prosperous and stuff. In Nigeria, people hated, ironically, the Igbos because they are more prosperous than other tribes. Um, a lot of the country, some form of jealousy. But like, what is the justification that people even say? I mean, to kind of go from the beginning of your point and then into the question, well, if you like were to bring in economics or if you were to bring in um, geography, I think something that Western countries don't realise or fail to realise is how different they are in development. Um, they're in the tertiary, even quaternary sectors. So they don't rely on natural resources or manufacturing. Then, you know, they're not like, um, for example, Ethiopia is very much an agricultural society. So we rely on um, our farms and exporting those. And let's say China, for example, is a very uh, industrial country. So they rely on um, manufacturing things. And, you know, the UK, they they are service-based um, country. So they, they honestly, they get everything from other countries. They take so many ex- imports um, and they don't really have a, a, a manufacturing community here now, especially since, you know, Thatcher's um, um, being prime minister in the 80s. So to them, if they were in this situation and let's say America sanctioned them or the EU sanctioned um, the UK, it would hit us here very, very hard because we rely so much on other countries um, to provide things for us. But Ethiopia is a pretty self-sufficient country when it comes to the basic needs. So by sanctioning the government, yes, it only affects the government and its 
you know role in the community in the national community it doesn't really help the people um because at the end of the day uh it's you know they already are they're already farming for their sustenance they're already doing things in order to benefit themselves and not necessarily having imports that actually benefit them um, beyond aid for example um and so back to the question that you were asking um I would say the main argument I've been hearing has been out of complete brainwashing. I think, I think some people know exactly what's happening and choose to almost like what um, Beth was saying, weaponize past experiences and past um, oppression um, and comparing it to this one when, you know, they are mutually exclusive. They don't, you know, one doesn't exist because of the other. Um, but I think something that I've noticed, especially among diaspora around me, who I've known for many, many years, family, friends, who are of other regions, um, particularly Amhara, is that they genuinely believe that the government is doing the right thing. They, they don't seem to think or they don't seem to try and critically analyze their government. Um, and they just choose to be naive and they just choose to just believe everything on the government. And as a person, I just don't understand I personally too, I don't understand how um, you can't think for the other side of the story. You can't, uh, you don't blindly follow someone. You always have to wonder why they're doing it. Is it true? Do the other person have a truth to this as well? Um, but they seem to not have that. They, whatever the government says goes. And if if the government says that the TPLF are storming their region, it happened. If the government says the TPLF uh, I don't know, cutting off their humanitarian supplies, or if they say the TPLF wants to nationalize their language, it's happening. I don't know whether it's naivety, I don't know if it's brainwashing, or of like something that's been happening over the last 30, 40 years um, between the two regions, or if it's just people are, are so lacking in compassion and so lacking in care to even dig a little deeper um, to find out the, the actual root of this issue, or at least to figure out where places where their government themselves has actually been lying to them. Um, so I think that's the main thing. I think with all genocides, with all conflicts within countries, it's always been because propaganda and people just blindly following their leaders rather than actually critically analysing them. So yeah, that's that's why I think they are supporting them. It's crazy to hear what you guys are both saying. And it's crazy to hear that the kind of the conflict is spreading into the diaspora. So the final question is, how can Ethiopians get involved? And also, how can non-Ethiopians get involved? So what can we do to help the situation? Well, that's something that I was struggling with at the beginning of the conflict, because I just felt so helpless being in um, the UK. But something that I think would definitely help the, the civilians is maybe people signing petitions. They're not just, you know, change.org, the government petition. So if we have people pushing for this to be talked about in parliament, even if they have decided not to go along with the bill, the more people that are forcing the government's hand, the more we'll have autonomy over what we want the government to represent and what we want the UK to do for other countries. I think also um, I was part of a uh, donation drive um, we sent like thousands of clothes. It was really beautiful to see how much people donated. But um, if people are willing to donate anything, clothes, um, toiletries, you know, wet wipes, anything, that would be like really great. So we can send them over. Also, you know, 
I guess there's been a whole conversation about performative activism and all that. But honestly, at the end of the day, as long as there's been uh, communication, as long as there's, you know, activism online, as long as people are sharing information, I don't care if it's performative because it does its job. People will see it eventually. Um, so I'd say sending things on Instagram or Snapchat or wherever, signing petitions, maybe coming to protests if you can. Also, you know, donating clothes and just honestly not staying silent. I think staying silent is probably the worst thing. <laughs> just silence isn't great. <laughs> silence isn't good. And hopefully people after listening to this will realize the severity of the situation and do something about it on their part. Yeah. Um, so in terms of what um, the Ethiopian and non-Ethiopian community can do, I think the two are a little different um, because right now the Ethiopian community is a little broken. Um one thing the Ethiopian community can do is really listen to us, um, listen to us to battles because it is us who are suffering, it's our families. And we don't need to be told uh, what we should want or which leaders should we should oppose. We don't need to be told any of that. What we do need to be told is that people agree that what the government is doing to the innocent civilians is wrong. And that's something needs to be done. We really need this real sense of sort of unity um, that people actually often talk about ironically, um, but isn't there, isn't existing. And in terms of what the non-Ethiopian community can do, I would say number one, educate, just educate. People just need to educate themselves on what's going on and the reality and the extent of this. And I know it's really difficult because there's there's a real lack of media coverage going on right now. Um, and so I would say, you know, listen to the Tigray community. Um, Twitter is a really good resource to utilize. Um, right now, a lot of us have been utilizing Twitter and we've been having a lot of Twitter campaigns. So if people could just type in the hashtag stop war on Tigray or Tigray gen genocide. Those are the two that we're really, really utilizing. People can just have a look at those two hashtags and they can re read through the tweets. Um, websites like Omna Tigray, O-M-N-A Tigray, T-I-G-R-A-Y.com and also their Instagram page as well. Um, Instagram pages, a lot of Tigray Instagram pages are actually really helpful because they do um, include sort of informative posts, links. Um, they do direct people uh, to links of which, you know, they can utilize in order to make donations or even sign certain specific petitions. Um, and those would be real, real helpful. And also, um, like Ilya said, urging the government. I know that Keir Starmer today wrote a letter um, to Dominic Raab about uh, taking this Tigray war to the UN Security Council. So if people can really get behind these kinds of initiatives and put pressure on governments and you know agencies and sort of institutions like the UN, it really, really will help us get the word out and really put pressure on this because at this point, millions of people are relying on the outside world to, to help them. Um, people really, really are relying on us and we as a diaspora would really, really appreciate it if people could just listen to us and utilize those resources in order to raise awareness um, and, and try and get this sort of under control because this is just, it's a, it's a real, real dire humanitarian crisis. There's no other way to put it. Um, and our people are really, really dying by the masses and their suffering. Um, yeah, so we will really, really appreciate that. Um, thank you guys for having, number one, the energy to share all of that with us. We really do appreciate it. I'm sure the emotional turmoil you guys go through personally is is quite a lot. So we do appreciate you giving us your time and your energy uh, to explain the whole situation to us. Hopefully it gets better for you guys. You. I am praying for you. Thank you, you very much. Thank you. Really appreciate that. Thank you for having us here. Anytime. Mm -hmm.